Mindcaddy. Mindcaddy is a safe space that offers well-being support for anyone, anytime, anywhere. At Mindcaddy, we offer a range of approaches that you can take to help you grow and blossom all aspects of your well-being so that you can find the things that are just right for you. My name is Raddy, and in this episode, we explore the topic of anxiety stimulants. Now, anxiety stimulants can come in many forms. There are ones we can inhale, drink, ingest, and so on. But a wealth of scientific data now shows that many of those things that we don't even think twice about when consuming are not only related to mood disorders, but could be very significantly contributing to them. So for the purpose of today's episode, we're going to review a number of these. Substances that may provoke the onset of anxiety, exacerbate an existing problem, or even mimic it very closely. Along the way, we'll offer plenty of research evidence and also explain the exact biological mechanisms through which each of these items can evoke anxiety, so that by the end, you're able to walk away with a fuller understanding of the topic. We'll start with one that many people take with the intention of relieving their anxiety. But we may need to rethink our stance on this one, because it could also be a potential cause. So it's a bit of a controversial topic, and it's one around the use of nicotine. A lot of people, as we know, smoke as a way of self-medicating to help ease those feelings of stress. But what research is now showing is that actually smoking may increase anxiety and tension. And many of you will ask, well, how can that be the case? And to answer that, we need to look at general trends. What we know is that the majority of anxious individuals smoke, and the majority of smokers have anxious tendencies. Now, this presents a bit of a chicken and egg dilemma. Which one came first? There have been a lot of studies done to investigate this. And by and large, the evidence shows that anxiety disorders do not seem to predict smoking and tobacco use which in turn would tip the scales the other way and suggest it's the other way around. And longitudinal research that's been conducted over the past few decades supports this. One thing they have found is that young adults with a nicotine dependence early on in life are at much greater risk of developing an anxiety disorder later on compared to non-smokers or even smokers who are not nicotine dependent. Not only that, those who are nicotine dependent are more likely to develop more than one type of anxiety, which in itself is an even bigger problem. And another study that specifically looked at proneness to panic attacks determined that current smoking, especially when done on a daily basis, significantly predicts onset of panic disorder and panic attacks. Although interestingly, past smoking does not. So the more time that passes after you quit, the lower your chances of experiencing these things. But what if you are a smoker and you are interested in whether nicotine might just have some possible benefits? The truth is, the effects of it are actually quite paradoxical. On an emotional and cognitive level, many people report that they feel calmer after they've had a cigarette. There's that temporary feeling of wellness and relaxation. But if you look at the physiological measures, the response of the body is incongruent to that. Because we observe a heightening in heart rate, in blood pressure, in how much oxygen the heart uses, these are all characteristics of a sympathetic nervous system that's been activated. 
This is basically your fight or flight response. Now, here's a hypothesis. It could be that the feeling of relaxation occurs despite these physiological responses because at the time of intake, nicotine leads to the release of a substantial amount of dopamine, serotonin, GABA, norepinephrine, all of these neurotransmitters that are designed to make us feel good. So many studies support the fact that through these biochemical processes, it could have an anxiolytic effect, meaning it alleviates the anxiety. And just to put into context quite how much of an effect it can have on our neurochemistry, think of it this way. Sex increases our dopamine levels two times above baseline. Nicotine, especially when smoked, increases it two and a half times above baseline. It's short-lived, but it's there nevertheless. And that's actually exactly the same as what cocaine does. It increases it two and a half times above baseline. Then things like amphetamines boost dopamine levels 10 times higher. And this is also a good opportunity to mention that cocaine and amphetamines are very strong central nervous system stimulants, which are likely to cause anxiety-like symptoms. So if you are a user, it's just something to be aware of and consider. While we're on the topic of drugs, it's not just the illegal ones that may have an effect. It's important to mention that certain medications can cause similar unwanted symptoms. Now, it's always important to check the details with your doctor. And of course, certain medications are necessary to keep us healthy. But just for the purpose of raising awareness. Specific migraine pills, steroids, bronchodilators designed to open up the airways thyroid preparations, cardiovascular drugs, things that are generally supposed to treat other co-occurring medical conditions may have an effect. Now, remember this doesn't apply to everyone. Not everybody will respond in the same way and get anxiety symptoms as a result of taking these. And it's not all medicines that fall under these categories that will elicit this effect. So if you are concerned, it's important that you speak to your GP and just keep an eye out on how your body reacts to things. Right, I know we digressed a little talking about drugs, but I just want to quickly go back to the topic of nicotine. And the last thing I want to mention here is around the reasons why its effect is so complex and inconsistent. Now, we talked about how it offers short-term relief, but this very soon gives way to withdrawal symptoms, and those in themselves can act as a cause of anxiety. But following chronic use, there are certain adaptations that happen in the brain which result in more exacerbated symptoms. Just to explain this in a bit more detail. We all have receptors in the brain for nicotine, but addicted smokers, for instance, have billions more of those. And when you cut off the supply, that is the supply of nicotine, then the pleasure response is also very rapidly cut off too, leading to anxiety, frustration, restlessness, and so on. Now, the other thing to mention is that the effects are very inconsistent across situations too. Across various laboratory studies, nicotine has been found to help with certain slightly distressing tasks, but it does not help with things like phobias, pain-related tasks, or endurance-related ones. Which begs the question, is it really the nicotine that helps, or is it the smoking-related cues that act as a distractor in these situations that are just slightly uncomfortable, making us think that there's a positive effect. And this effect, of course, can't be upheld in those considerably more distressing situations because even a placebo can only do so much. And the final thing to mention is that the route of administration is also paramount. 
Now, certain things like nicotine guns or patches may have an anxiolytic effect, but the mechanisms through which most people bring it into their systems are predominantly smoking, dipping, snuffing, and vaping. And those are absolutely detrimental. They're terrible for every system in your body. Mental health, physical health, hormonal, and so on. Most people would want to quit these practices because in those cases, its effects are more anxiogenic, that is, it generates or induces anxiety, than anxiolytic. Okay, before we move on to a completely different topic, another substance that I want to mention, which can produce similar negative outcomes, is alcohol. And I want to touch on why it's bad, both in the short term and in the long term. Unlike your typical stimulants, alcohol is actually a depressant, meaning that in small doses, it suppresses the activity of the nervous system. And for anyone who's ever had a drink, you'll have noticed how it makes you feel relaxed if you've had a stressful day at work, it makes you feel a little happier, less inhibited, a little jollier in a social situation, and so on. But that effect, as we all know, doesn't last very long, and as soon as people start to sober up a bit, they'll go for another drink to try and replicate that effect. And then they go for another, and then another. And this is where the problem starts. Because if you're using alcohol as a coping mechanism to soothe or mask your anxiety, then you could be putting yourself at risk of alcohol dependence. And because your nervous system will become habituated to the amount that you're consuming, you start to build up a tolerance. So you need more and more of it to produce the same calming effect that you experienced the first time around. Then there's the problem of those who have binge drinking episodes or just consume alcohol more heavily in general. The mechanism through which alcohol makes the problem worse is by affecting our brain chemistry on a broad level. Many neurotransmitters are impacted, but there are two primary ones that are probably having the biggest impact. So I'm going to focus on these two. The first one is called GABA. That's G-A-B-A. Now, you don't need to know much about GABA, but the key thing you need to be aware of is that GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter which acts to regulate the nervous system. All that means is that it stops it from becoming hyperactive. A hyperactive nervous system is one that is overly alert, always looking for threat and danger in the environment. Ultimately, it's your anxiety. So GABA is instrumental in calming it down, making sure that it doesn't go into overdrive and just lessening that response. Now, alcohol depletes the brain of GABA. The toxins in it harm the production of this important chemical. When somebody experiences GABA withdrawal, typically this is characterized by intrusive thoughts, persistent worries, panic attacks, and various other severe mental health symptoms. And that's even if you don't have a pre-existing condition. If you do already have a mental health problem, then a decrease in GABA can worsen it even further. Oftentimes, some people may take GABA supplements just to feel normal again, but there's just not enough research at this point in time that supports the effectiveness of these supplements. And ultimately, you want to allow your body to restore itself back to its natural balance and start to produce it again by itself. Usually, if you cut down your drinking for a couple of weeks, or better yet, stop drinking altogether for a couple of weeks, most people can expect to start to see an improvement in their anxiety at that point. So that's the first one. Now, the second neurotransmitter I want to mention is cortisol. 
And this one, most of you will be aware, is known as the stress hormone, and it can totally derail the way your body and mind functions. You may have heard of the term anxiety, where people experience anxiety as part of their hangovers, and that chemical is actually the culprit behind it. Physiologically speaking, alcohol intake increases the production of cortisol, both during the drinking session, but also afterwards, when you're withdrawing from the intoxication as your body's under stress trying to clear the alcohol out of your system. Not only that, but during detox, dopamine levels also drop. So that's a third neurotransmitter that also suffers and can make you feel worse. But that's a lot of cortisol that you all of a sudden have in your bloodstream and it puts you into fight or flight mode. It explains why so many people wake up the day after feeling nervous and anxious and stressed for reasons that they don't really understand. To top it all off, We know that even a glass of an alcoholic beverage can disrupt the amount of sleep you're getting. So as long as it's in your bloodstream, in whatever quantity, you might still be getting the number of hours, but it's not that high quality sleep that you're getting. And that's a whole new topic of its own because we know how detrimental lack of sleep or poor fragmented sleep can be for mental health. And on the topic of sleep, there is one other thing that disrupts it. Meanwhile, also acting as an anxiety stimulant. Most of you will already be aware of this, but it will be remiss not to mention it here. And that's caffeine. It is, to date, the most widely used psychoactive drug. And as you'd already know, it exists in a lot of products like teas, energy drinks, dark chocolate, although even milk chocolate has some too, coffee and so on. Now, the effects of it largely vary from person to person. For most people, a single cup in the morning isn't going to do an awful lot of damage but it can contribute to some anxiety symptoms. Obviously, the more you consume, the worse you'll feel the effects. And those effects can hit pretty soon after consumption too. In one study, they measured anxiety, depression and hostility in participants just before and then one hour after they were administered a dose of caffeine. The participants were split into three groups depending on the dosage they were given. So you had a low dose, medium and high dose. And the average scores across all three groups indicated an increase in anxiety just one hour after consumption. Although the effects weren't so large for the low-dose group, they were very significant for the medium and high groups. And this is when the peak tends to happen. It's usually one hour to 90 minutes after you have the drink. And it's worth keeping in mind that it can last for a while too. Reports find that cessation of the symptoms don't tend to happen until the four and a half to five hour mark post-consumption. So if you do drink, it's just good to know what to expect. Now, the next question is, what kind of effect do the different doses have? And like I mentioned earlier, there is no one size fits all answer here. It will depend on your weight, your gender, your tolerance, your metabolism. Some people will metabolize it much faster than others and other factors related to your physiology. So you could be sensitive to it in that way. But other what we call sensitive groups would also include young people, for example, and also those with pre-existing mental health problems. Especially for people with panic disorder, social anxiety disorder and bipolar disorder, you're better off just staying away from caffeine as much as possible. Generalized anxiety disorder, not so much. The research isn't very clear there. But for the ones that I just mentioned, it is highly likely that you'll experience that anxiogenic impact much more strongly even at low doses. 
But as I said, lots of studies have looked into what the various doses can do. And broadly speaking, research cites that anything from 25 milligrams to 150 milligrams of caffeine can have an anxiogenic effect. Now, I know this is quite a broad range, but as mentioned, different tolerance levels. And if you think about it, that threshold actually isn't even that high. If your average cup of coffee has about 80 to 100 milligrams of caffeine, then that lower end of the range equates to about a quarter of a cup. And for those who aren't quite that sensitive, it'd be just about under two cups. So this is how much you'd have to drink to just start presenting with anxiety symptoms. But another study that looked at larger doses showed some pretty shocking findings and states that, and I quote, in doses of above one gram, equivalent to five or six cups of coffee, caffeine induces a state that is clinically indistinguishable from anxiety as a symptom of some psychiatric disorders. Such manifestations include restlessness, tension, trembling, and fear. So while understandably it has its benefits in terms of making you feel more alert, more productive, energetic, and so on, it's worth keeping in mind that overstimulation can seriously aggravate and maintain the anxiety. Similarly to alcohol, it can also disrupt your sleep. Especially if you're drinking in the afternoon, it will still be circulating in your bloodstream at midnight. And that in itself, the disrupted sleep or withdrawal symptoms, if you stop consuming it all of a sudden and you have a caffeine dependency, all of these things can add to the problem. So if you want to wean yourself off of it without those withdrawal symptoms, then it's worth trying cutting down slowly or sometimes switching to decaf until you can go back to normal levels of consumption or just cut it out completely. And the last thing I want to talk about on this podcast, which can act as a major contributor to anxiety, is certain foods, specifically the ones associated with the standard Western diet. A lot of red meat, a lot of sugar a lot of saturated fats, processed oils, and so on. So all the stuff that comes prepackaged and ready to eat, say crisps, candy, pastries, sausages, etc. These are the things we call ultra-processed foods. Not only will they destroy your waistline, but consumed excessively, they can have a very similar effect on your mind too. There was a very recent study done looking at how foods affect people of different age groups and found that for young adults so that is anyone up until the age of about 30, those who ate fast food more than three times a week scored significantly higher on mental distress. For some reason, as you get older, other factors become more prevalent compared to fast foods, which is why the correlation was still going in that same direction, but wasn't quite as strong. And then there's additional scientific data where over 10,000 people were surveyed and the headline finding of that research was that junk food leads to more anxious days. So the greater the amount of ultra-processed food you consume, the more mentally unhealthy or anxious days you would have compared to people who generally avoid these foods. And also, in terms of probability, those who regularly consume junk food are far less likely to have zero anxious days. So you might be wondering why that is. And there are several mechanisms through which this happens. Firstly, what the refined carbs in a lot of these fast foods do is they cause a sharp spike in blood sugar levels, followed by a crash. And these subsequent very low levels can manifest themselves as panic attacks, insomnia, and other anxiety symptoms. Secondly, those kinds of foods are almost completely void of any nutritional value. 
We're talking minimal amounts of fiber, minimal amounts of vitamins, minerals, etc. And deficits in those mimic mental health conditions. So if you want to improve your depression, anxiety, and so on, then you have to give your body more of them. And this is an area that's been very well researched, especially as part of intervention studies, where, for example, they've shown that high doses of vitamin D supplementation can treat anxiety. High doses of omega-3 or vitamin B3 can do the same for depression, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and so on. But instead, what you're putting into your body is a ton of artificial sweeteners, emulsifiers, colorings, processed oils, and things that are generally very challenging to metabolize and have been proven to cause inflammation and harm the microbiome in your gut. And both of these things, inflammation in the gut and suboptimal microbiome, are associated with anxiety. Without going too deeply into the neuroscience of it, it's simply because of the way the brain and the body communicate, whether your body is able to provide the brain with the building blocks for neurotransmitters, which are key in regulating anxiety, and so on. Now, is something like going to McDonald's once a month going to give you anxiety? Probably not. But is the continuous or too high consumption of fast foods and the ultra-processed stuff which I mentioned earlier on a daily basis that without you even realizing, will play havoc with your mind. And I should say at this point, it doesn't even have to be food. This could apply to anything. Whether it's binge eating junk foods, chain smoking, even binge watching TV or binge playing video games, because those behaviors are also associated with anxiety and people who engage in them experience much more intense mental disorder symptoms. If you think about it, it ultimately all relates to behaviors that are almost addictive in nature. And the question arises as to whether the behavior is there to mask something else. And once it's removed, will it lead to an even bigger problem? Sometimes to treat anxiety, we need to look no further than how we treat our bodies. Are we covering up a problem with more dysfunctional behaviors? Are we triggering physiological chain reactions that stimulate anxiety even more? Everything you feed your mind and your body matters. There is no magic cure. But gaining an awareness of how things impact you is a small step towards making better everyday choices and a big step towards putting you in a position of strength to beat anxiety. Thank you for joining us today. And always remember that Mindcaddy is here to offer safe space to learn, develop and grow. Well-being is a continuous journey and we can all make small changes that feel just right for us to experience those big positive impacts. My name is Ruddy and I'll see you again in the next episode.